we've just started a new series on 1 Corinthians here. Now you might be wondering, particularly if you weren't here last week, what exactly this letter's all about and particularly what this church is like which the author, Paul, has written to. Well, it's a church in Corinth. Uh, this letter was written in sort of the 60s kind of AD. Uh, a church that Paul founded but a church that is now drifting away from the message which Paul originally preached. That message that he preached is summed up really neatly for us in chapter 2, verse 2. Look at with me. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I, Paul, resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. That really is his topic sentence for all of his preaching, both here and in all the churches where he preached. And yet, as we make our way slowly week by week through 1 Corinthians here at church, we'll see that this church really feels that it's got a bit beyond that message, that maybe Christ crucified is a bit basic, a bit bland even, that they're now spiritual and that they can move beyond the foundations of this to other more deep spiritual wisdom or other more fantastic spiritual acts of power. They think that far from being the centrality of the Christian message, that the cross is really just the foundation upon which all the other more exciting things are built. In fact, for them, the impression we get as we read through this letter is that the cross is maybe a bit crude, a bit unsophisticated, or perhaps even a bit embarrassing. Now, for us as Christians here, we know that that's not the case. We know that the cross is the very foundation of what we're all about and that should be really the foundation of our lives. But have you ever caught yourself thinking inadvertently the same way? I don't know if you've ever done this. Sometimes I have these little out-of-body experiences. Don't worry, it's nothing weird. You don't need to call any authorities or anything like that. But you're talking to someone and you suddenly hear yourself as if you're detached. And you'll be, maybe you're explaining the Christian faith to someone and you're explaining the cross and how that pays for sin and how you know, God's angry with us and yet he's taken all the punishment out on Jesus and you, you catch yourself thinking, you think, gosh, that sounds weird. Do I really believe that? And don't you sometimes when that happens wish to yourself somehow, I wish God had planned it a bit differently? I wish Christianity was a bit less weird? Or maybe you're answering some particularly thorny questions that someone's getting to you, asking about hell or the existence of angels and demons or homosexuality or the resurrection or about how on earth 2,000 years ago the death of a tradesman could solve the ultimate problems of the universe. Aren't you sometimes tempted to think, I wish God had done it a bit differently? I wish this message had been a bit more philosophical, a bit more impressive. Aren't you tempted sometimes, I know I certainly am, just to tweak it a little bit, to make it that little bit more accessible? Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you haven't gone through those kind of things, but maybe you're suffering from the same temptations that the Corinthians are. You've been a Christian for a while, you've been fed a steady diet of Christ and him crucified, and yet you wish you could just move on a bit beyond that. You wish there was something more beyond that, something more interesting, some deeper connection that you could have. Well, maybe you're not a Christian here. Maybe you're not a Christian and so are not familiar with these kinds of things, but you've been seeking for God. 
but unsuccessfully. You've gone down any number of tracks. Maybe it's philosophy or maybe it's mysticism. Maybe it's even science. And yet despite all of your best efforts and the best efforts of all the writers of the books that you've read, God seems to be doing a wonderful job of hiding himself. You just can't find out what God is like. You'd think that God, if he's there, would be a really big target. And yet somehow, despite all of that, and despite all of human beings' best endeavours, we just can't find him. Why, if this is the case, why does God persist with his message about a crucified Christ? Sometimes to Christians and maybe to non-Christians alike, there are times when to us the message of the cross just seems foolish. Why is that the case? And why does God persist in this foolishness? Well, this passage answers that question. So why don't I pray very quickly before we get into it. Dear God and Father, you know the secrets of our hearts and you know our errors and you know the fact that we are incapable of knowing you without you. Please, as we come to answer this question, please speak to us clearly from this passage. Amen. Well, if you're a note taker, uh, you might find it helpful to have three points written down on your page. And they are simply the foolish message, the foolish church and the foolish preacher. So first of all, the foolish message. And we're dealing with that first part there of chapter 1. Straight out of the blocks, Paul admits that his message seems foolish. Look with me at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved it is the power of God. Right from the get-go, Paul states, yes, the message of the cross does seem foolish. And it doesn't just seem foolish to his listeners back then. You only need to pick up a copy of Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion, a best-selling book released in 2005, to find this view alive and well. Listen to what he has to say about the doctrine of the cross of Christ. I have described atonement, the the central doctrine of Christianity, as vicious, sadomasochistic and repellent. We should also dismiss it as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our objectivity. If God wanted to forgive our sins... Why not just forgive them? Yes, to those who are perishing, the cross of Christ does look foolish. But if it looks so foolish, and if God wants to save people, why does he persist with that message? Why does he make it look foolish? It almost seems obtuse. But the answer comes in the following verses. Look with me at verse 19. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, the reason that Paul gives here and that God gives to us through him is this. God does not want us as human beings coming to him on our own terms. Let me say that again. God doesn't want us as human beings coming to us, coming to him rather, on his own terms. 
And he illustrates that graphically with this quote from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 29. Let me read to you a part of that that sort of surrounds that quote. Isaiah 29, starting at verse 13. He's talking about Israel and he says this, These people, Israel, come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Isaiah's message to Israel 800 years before Christ came is that Israel continues to try and come to God worshipping him on their own terms. They come to him with with their own man-made religion, attempting to please him with their own ideas, out of their own attempts. And yet God rebuts any of that independence. He says, Israel, don't you remember sin? Don't you remember that sin is independence from me? If you've moved away from me by independence, how on earth do you expect to come back to me by independence? You can only come to me on my terms and my terms alone. God will frustrate any attempt to come to him just by sheer willpower. And so you see that there in verse 20. God actively frustrates the wisdom of the world. Where is the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? And that frustration is very real. Look there at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And that's true. The world hasn't been able to find out God. No philosopher has been able to prove his existence. No mystic has been able to prove categorically his presence. No scientist has managed to devise him. No human being through sheer intellectual effort has been able to find out who God is, not even if he exists. Human beings can't come to God on our own terms. And yet... Look there in the second half of verse 21. God was pleased for that to happen. Again, he intended it. That people would come to him through the foolishness of what was preached. I think sometimes it's difficult for us as people 2,000 years after the event to really comprehend just exactly how foolish this message seemed to its original listeners. It was totally unexpected, totally unexpected. Look with me at verse 22 here. It's just talking about the foolishness of what's being preached and it says here, verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. They're not looking for a crucified Christ. They're looking for signs, at least the Jews are. And in fact, when we look through the Gospel accounts, that's exactly what we do see. The Jewish leaders and authorities are constantly coming up to Jesus and saying, look, if you're the Christ, if you're God's king, if you're God's powerful one, well then for heaven's sake, show us something powerful. Show us a miracle. If you're powerful, if you're the Christ, that's what the Christ is, show me something powerful. Give me a sign. Look at Mark verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 11, or rather I'll read it to you. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He's not just using rhetoric here. They wanted a sign. They wanted power. And the Greeks, well, they weren't so interested in miraculous signs... But, verse 22, they look for wisdom. They're looking for philosophy. 
They want a God whom they can compartmentalise and approach themselves. That was what the Greeks were known for in the ancient words. They were kind of the brains of the operation. And yet what does God give them? Does God give them what their independence of mind wants? Well, not when their independence of mind is the very problem. Look at verses 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, for Jews, the whole idea of a crucified Christ was totally illogical. A Christ is a king. He's the powerful one. A crucified person is dead. And not just dead, but dying in agony. Not just dead and dying in agony, but due to a prophecy in the Old Testament, anyone who was hung on a tree or crucified was cursed by God. How could God's king be cursed by God? It's just ridiculous. In fact, it's so ridiculous as to actually be offensive. The word that gets used here isn't just foolishness, or or the word here is a stumbling block. It's literally a scandal. The kind of thing that, the kind of emotion that arises when a leader commits some horrible sexual sin. You know, the Bill Clintons of this world, the the Monica Lewinsky, the kind of thing that fills the newspapers for weeks on end. A scandal of something. You know, you're walking past the news agency and you look at New Idea, and there you see a story about a baby bump. You know, I've never come across these baby bumps before, but there they are. You know, who's pregnant? Uh, And is it to someone whom they're married to or not? Who's seeing who? What's gone wrong here? It's a scandal. But that kind of sense of indignancy is exactly what Paul is saying that the Jews see the message of the cross as. It's a scandal. God, you're sending a Christ and then you crucify him? That's not just illogical, that's offensive. And yet that's what God gives them. And to the Gentiles, it's not wise, it's foolish. It's just stupid, a contradiction in terms, like fried ice. How can you have a saviour who is at the same time slaughtered? And yet that's what God gives them. And God gives it to them because it is in the cross of Christ that we see both the power and the wisdom of God. Not the power the Jews expected, not the wisdom the Greeks expected, but the power and the wisdom of God Almighty. And so why has God done that? Well, I think we've begun to see it. Because God is not going to pander to human independence. The very problem that started the whole ball rolling. God wants to make absolutely crystal clear that salvation is 100% his initiative. That human beings have nothing to offer that there is no way that we can scale, our, scale the heights of God and get to him on our own, but rather it takes an initiative of God through the cross to reach us. That's why Paul preached what he did. Look in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, he wants to make sure that everyone knows that, verse 25, even the foolishness of God 
is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And that brings me to my second point. The foolish church. You can see it there in beginning in verse 26. See, Paul's laid the foundation of his argument and now he goes on to say that what you see around you in the church, and later on he'll go on to say what you saw with me as a preacher, makes complete sense in the light of what I've just said. In fact, he calls a very clever piece of evidence to bolster his argument, the fact that the cross, as foolish as it seems, is actually the way to go. Because look there, verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's actually really quite an offensive thing, particularly if you're a member of this Corinthian church who thinks that you've progressed past the cross. You think you're way past this whole Jesus on the cross business. You know, you've progressed to spiritual power and spiritual wisdom and you've got all sorts of insights that you're busy impressing people with. And then Paul says, yeah, you know, you know, you must realise that the wisdom of God is actually better than yours because, well, look at you. You're not terribly impressive. You're actually poor and stupid and kind of, you know, a bit trashy. You don't come from a very good home. And yet God saved you, so, well, he must save those kinds of people. It's a bit like the kind of person who, you know, the friend you've got, maybe you sort of say, look, I've been meaning to say to you, mate, you know, you're a bit shallow. All you ever seem to do is want to hang out with the coolest people. And then he retorts right back, no, I'm not, that's not right, I hang out with you, don't I? It's not exactly the most winning argument and yet it's really good, isn't it? Because it says to them, God saved you. You're not impressive. And so you're proof of the very thing that I'm arguing for. Now, I've got to say here, we've got to add a slight caveat here. He's not saying that it's impossible to be saved if you don't fit into any of these categories. There are people, many Christians, who are wise by human standards, who are very influential and are of extremely good birth. Uh, a lady, Huntington, in the time of the, uh, the Great Awakening in Britain in the, in the 18th century, uh, was a great friend of George Whitfield and John Wesley and a great supporter of those, was also of very high birth, all of these things. And she famously said that, uh, that she had been, she was very relieved that she was saved by an M. Because here he said, not, he didn't say not any are saved, but not many are saved. And that's the thing here. There are, of course, exceptions to the rule. And yet at the same time, we still need to feel the force of Paul's argument, don't we? By and large, the kind of people who very often do come to Christ are not the impressive. They're not the smart. They're not the well-born people. They're the people who aren't to nullify the people who are. I come from a, a not terribly well-off church down in Tassie. I went down there recently to see how people were. I was down on holidays and it was good to be back. But it really hit home to me just the glory of God and his gospel and what he's doing in the world by going back to that church. Because that church, from a human perspective, is hardly the dream organisation if you were a company director taking people on, you'd hardly be handpicking the people at this church. There was one girl who came up to me and she was so happy. She had said that she was so happy because she'd only been 
admitted into the psych ward twice that year. And for her, that was real progress. There were people there who suffered from other, much more debilitating mental illnesses. Our church is made up largely of university students, this is mine at home, who aren't particularly wealthy. It's made up of people who are unemployed. I don't go there and think, wow, what a testimony to the human spirit. What a testimony to human achievement. I look at broken lives, broken lives that are not even fixed yet. They're all a work in progress, as are we all. And yet that only throws into even sharper relief just how good God is and just how patent it is that it is God alone who can save and that human beings can contribute nothing to it. You see, verses 28 and 30 just ring so true, don't they? He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, we're a church here who, in many ways if we're honest, don't quite fit into this category. We're a church in an affluent, successful suburb of Sydney. Now, as I said to you before, I think a lot of us would fit within the Lady Huntingdon clause, if you can say that. We need to recognise, though, I think, as a church, that we are, in some ways, the exception to the rule. What does that teach us? Well, I think it teaches us that we need to be humble because of that. We need to realise that rich, successful, intelligent people from good families find it hard to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that if we're in it, that's a great thing of God, that we are in some ways the exception of the rule. Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I think he demonstrates that. But I think the temptation for that, as us as wealthy, affluent people, is somehow to make Christianity in the cross just a top-up to our otherwise successful lives. We have our emotional life and we have our financial life and we have our family life and yet I wonder sometimes, I find this temptation, do I just find Jesus says, well he just fulfills the spiritual portion. He's just my top-up. Everything else is catered for. Well, I don't know what Paul would say to that, or rather I do, that rather the cross should be the centre of my life here and a centre of enormous gratitude. But maybe you don't quite fit that bill. And maybe you're here today thinking you look at this church and you think, well, I don't really fit in here. Well, I want you to take comfort from this passage that God has chosen you to shame the wise and to bring low the mighty and to glorify him. Which brings me to my final point. The foolish message generates a foolish church all led by a foolish preacher. Look with me at chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers... I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. You see, finally Paul cites himself as evidence, evidence of this truth. And in the first two verses there, he really deals with the content of his preaching. When he came to them, his contents weren't impressive. He wasn't a preacher of eloquence or superior wisdom. 
Rather, he preached Christ crucified. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that he was in any way not a compelling speaker or that he didn't speak clearly. This is not a proof text here for bad communication or when you're a growth group leader, sorry, a connect group leader and you haven't prepared quite right, uh, then you can think, oh well, communication's not really the key, I'll just bumble along and I'm sure God will be glorified through me. It would probably be an act of faithlessness to really prepare. No, I'm afraid we can't get off on that hook. But rather, he wasn't a clever preacher. You know the preachers, and I must confess to have fallen or attempted to fall into it myself, where the person seems enamoured with their own clever ideas. They see the passage and they see its clear message, but they don't really want to go on about it because they've seen some tiny little thing which is really interesting. They'd love to go down that tangent, particularly because it would show how clever and philosophical they are, and they've got three funny stories which will set it off nicely. That's the kind of preacher he's not. He's not about that. Instead, his content is robust, straightforward, compelling. If his preaching is a compass, his needle is constantly pointing towards this true north, Christ crucified. That is his message. But his style was unimpressive as well. Look at verse 3. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom but on God's power. He came to them in weakness and fear and trembling. Now, he's not just being falsely modest. I find myself looking at this and going, well, I know you say that you weren't much of a preacher but you, know, you were kind of the apostle to the Gentiles and everything. You can't have been too unsuccessful. And yet... The very people who he's writing to here would later go on to criticise him in 2 Corinthians 10 for that very thing. For some say, he writes in that letter, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. There's even a story recorded in Acts uh, chapter 20 uh, where he's preaching to a crowd and it may be because of his lack of eloquence or whatever, but he, he's going the next day and he's really urgent and he just keeps on going on and on and on. And it records the fact that he's in an upper room and it's full of lamps, probably to indicate that it's getting quite hot and stuffy up there. And there's a man there who is absolutely dropping with sleep, listening to Paul's uh, preach, to the point where he actually falls out the window, three stories up, and dies. Now, most of us have probably never killed anyone with preaching. I mean, Paul had the power to be able to to resurrect, or to resuscitate him, rather. And yet, for him, maybe he wasn't the best orator. He didn't have the fancy whirly gigs that the Greek rhetoricians did. But he knew what he was saying. Christ crucified. That was his message. And why? Verse 5, so that your faith might rest not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Maybe you're just starting to lead a connect group. Or you're taking charge of kids' church. And you're really worried that you just won't have the right stuff. That you're not a gifted or entertaining communicator. This passage says very clearly, if you're not funny, if you're not clever, if you don't have great stories, don't worry. If you have Christ crucified set as your topic, you can never fail. Let's pray.